Welcome to Kingdom Testimony. This is Lisa. It is Monday, August 8th, 2022. We are reading Intramuros and we're on chapter 13. So I'm going to get right into it because I think, I think wasn't this one was kind of a long one. Yeah. Okay. Chapter 13 starts with a poem by Samuel Stennett. I take these little lambs, said he, and lay them in my breast. Protection they shall find in me, in me be ever blessed. In one of my walks about this time, I chanced upon a scene that brought to mind what May had said to me about the Savior's love for little children. I found him sitting beneath one of the flowering trees upon the lakeshore, with about a dozen children of all ages clustered around him. One dainty little tot, not more than a year old, was nestled in his arms with her sunny head resting confidingly upon his bosom, her tiny hands filled with the lovely water lilies that floated everywhere on the waters. She was too young to realize how great her privilege was, but seemed to be enjoying his care to the utmost. The others sat at his feet or leaned upon his knees, and one dear little fellow, with earnest eyes, stood, about, stood by him, leaning upon his shoulder while the master's right arm encircled him. Every eye was fixed eagerly upon Jesus, and each child appeared alert to catch every word he said. He seemed to be telling them some very absorbing story adapted to their childish tastes and capacities. I sat down upon the sward among a group of people, a little removed from the children, and tried to hear what he was saying, but we were too far away to catch more than a sentence now and then, and in heaven one never intrudes upon another's privileges or pleasures. So we simply enjoyed the smiles and eager questions and exclamations of the children, and gathered a little of the tenor of the story from the disjointed sentences which floated to us. A little child lost in the dark woods of the lower world, we heard the master say, in response to the inquiring looks of the interested children. Lions and bears came later on. Where was his papa? asked an anxious voice. We could not hear the reply, but soon a little fellow leaning upon the Savior's knees said confidently, No lions and bears up here. No, he replied, nothing to harm or frighten my little children here. Then as the story deepened and grew in interest and the children pressed more closely about the master, he turned with a sweet smile and we could see an increased pressure of the encircling arm to the little fellow with the earnest eyes who leaned upon his shoulder and said, What, Leslie, would you have done then? With a bright light in his eyes and a flush on his fair cheek, the child answered quickly and emphatically, I should have prayed to thee and asked thee to close the lion's mouth, as thou didst for Daniel, and thou wouldst have done it. Ah, I thought, could C and H see the look the beloved master cast upon their boy as he made his brave reply, they would be comforted even for the absence of their darling. Lost in these thoughts, I heard no more that passed until an ecstatic shout from the little folks proclaimed how satisfactory the story had ended. And looking up, I saw the Savior passing onward, onward, with the baby still in his arms, and the children trooping about him. 
of such is the kingdom of heaven, how well he understood, how much he loved them. I too arose and started homeward. I had not gone far before I met my brother Frank, who greeted me with, I'm on my way to the city by the lake. Will you accompany me? It has been long my wish to visit the city. I only waited until you thought it was wise for me to go. I answered, You're growing so fast in the knowledge of the heavenly ways, he said, that I think I might venture to take you almost anywhere with me now. You acquire the knowledge for the very love of it, not because you feel it your duty to know what we would have you learn. Your eagerness to gather to yourself all truth, and at the same time your patient submission and waiting, oft times when I know the trial is great, have won for you much praise and love from our dear Master, who watches eagerly the progress of us all in the divine life. I think it only right that you should know of this. We need encouragement here as well as in the earth life, though in a different way. I tell you this by divine permission. I think it will not be long before he trusts you with a mission, but this I say of myself, not by his command. It would be impossible for me to convey in the language of earth the impression these words of commendation left upon me. They were so unexpected, so unforeseen, I had gone on, as my brother said, eagerly gathering the knowledge imparted to me, with a genuine love for the study of all things pertaining to the blessed life, without a thought that I in any way deserved commendation for so doing, and now I had won the approbation of the Master himself. The happiness seemed almost more than I had strength to bear. My brother, my dear brother, was all I could say in my deep joy stopping suddenly and looking up into his face with grateful tears. I am so glad for you, little sister, he said, warmly clasping my hand. There are, you see, rewards in heaven. It does my soul good that you have unconsciously won one of these so soon. I would, I might record in detail the precious words of wisdom that fell from his lips. I would that I might recount minutely the events of that wonderful life as it was unfolded to me day by day. But I can only say I may not. When I undertook to make a record of that never-to-be-forgotten time, I did not realize how many serious difficulties I would have to encounter, how often I would have to pause and consider if I might really reveal this truth or paint that scene as it appeared to me. The very heart has often been left out of some wonderful scene I was attempting to describe because I found I dared not reveal its sacred secret. I realize painfully that the narrative, as I am forced to give it, falls infinitely short of what I've hoped to make it when I began. But bear with me. It is no fancy sketch I am drawing, but the veritable life beyond as it appeared to me when the exalted spirit rose triumphant over the impoverished flesh, made slavishly subservient through suffering. My brother and I walked slowly back to the margin of the lake, where we stepped into a boat lying near the shore, and were at once transported to the farther shore of the lake, and landed upon a marble terrace, the entrance to the city by the lake. I never knew by what power these boats were propelled. They were no, there were no oarsmen, no engine, no sails upon the one in which we crossed the water, but it moved steadily onward till we were safely landed at our destination luxuriously cushioned seats were all around it, 
and upon one of them lay a musical instrument, something like a violin, although it had no bow, but seemed to be played by the fingers alone. Upon another seat lay a book. I picked it up and opened it. It seemed to be a continuation of that book that has stirred and thrilled millions of hearts in the mortal life, the greatest thing in the world. As I glanced through it while we journeyed, I grasped the truth that this great mind already had grappled with the mighty things of eternity and given food to immortals, even as he had to those in mortal life in the years gone by. I was roused from my thoughts by the boat touching the marble terrace and found my brother already standing and waiting to assist me to the shore. Passing up a slight acclivity, we found ourselves in a broad street that led into the heart of the city. The streets I found were all very broad and smooth and paved with marble and precious stones of every kind. Though they were thronged with people intent on various duties, not an atom of debris or even dust was visible anywhere. There seemed to be vast business houses of many kinds, though I saw nothing resembling our large mercantile establishments. There were many colleges and schools, many book and music stores and publishing houses, several large manufactories, where I learned were spun the fine silken threads of manifold colors, which were so extensively used in the weaving of the draperies I have already mentioned. There were art rooms, picture galleries and libraries, and many lecture halls and vast auditoriums. But I saw no churches of any kind. At first this somewhat confused me until I remembered that there are no creeds in heaven, but that all worship together in harmony and love, the children of one and the same loving Father. Ah, I thought, what a pity that that fact, if no other in the great economy of heaven, could not be proclaimed to the inhabitants of earth how it would do away with the petty contentions, jealousies, and rivalries of the church militant. No creeds in heaven, no converted points of doctrine, no charges of heresy brought by one professed Christian against another, no building up of one denomination until the ruins or downfall of a different sect, but one great universal brotherhood whose head is Christ and whose cornerstone is love. I thought of the day we had listened in the great auditorium at home to the divine address of our beloved master, of the bowed heads and uplifted voices of that vast multitude, as every voice joined in the glorious anthem, crown him Lord of all, and I could have wept to think of the faces that must some day be bowed in shame when they remember how often they have in mortal life said to a brother Christian, stand aside, I am holier than thou. We found no dwelling houses anywhere in the midst of the city until we came to the suburbs. Here they stood in great magnificence and splendor. But one pleasing fact was that every home had its large dooryard, full of trees and flowers and pleasant walks. Indeed, it was everywhere, outside of the business center of the town, like one vast park dotted with lovely houses. There was much that charmed, much that surprised me in this great city, of which I may not fully speak but which I can never forget. We found in one place a very large park with walks and drives and fountains and miniature lakes and shaded seats, but no dwellings or buildings of any kind except an immense circular open temple capable of seating many hundred, and where, my brother told me, a seraph choir assembled at a certain hour daily and rendered the oratorios written by the great musical composers of earth and heaven. It had just departed, and the crowd who had enjoyed its divine music yet lingered as though loath to leave a spot so hallowed. 
We will remember the hour, my brother said, and come again when we can hear them. And that is the end of chapter 13. One thing I wanted to make note of, two things actually. The first one is the longer she stays there, the more um, precise and mature the scene is conveyed. Do you know what I mean with that? Um, so she's talking about the children with Jesus and then um, and then she goes into how she dares not describe things, certain things as she saw them or things exactly as she saw them because they were too, too holy, um, just too wonderful to describe. So it's, it's almost like she's trying to convey it in a way back on earth, the way earth people would understand it. The second thing I wanted to point out, um, when she picked up the book, it was a continuation of the book, The Greatest Thing in the World. And I looked online and Henry Drummond was an evangelist, a Scottish evangelist, I believe it said. Um, and he wrote this book, The Greatest Thing in the World. He lived from 1851 to 1897, so it must have been very popular at the time. So he was a Scottish, Scottish evangelist, biologist, writer, and lecturer. Um, so let's see what it says about him. He was very influential in the day. He had, he was, um, he came, became for a time deeply interested in the evangelizing mission of D.L. Moody, who is well known. Um, and he was influenced by the revile movement in the reformed Protestantism. So we have to remember in the late 1800s, everything was still pretty heavily influenced by uh, the reformed, the reformation movement. Because the Pentecostal, oh, what's the word I'm trying to think of? Revivals, the Pentecostal movement didn't really kick in until 1900, 1901. So right before she, um, right before all of that happened, she wrote this book. And it no doubt happened to her possibly even a decade before that. So she's writing through the lens of making people understand through the Reformation, Martin Luther, those types of things. So we need to keep that in mind. Um, I'm going to leave it here. This was chapter 13 of Intramuros. And until next time, I pray you have a blessed day.